You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Every one of those are kind of worth a sermon, all uh, in and of themselves. I mean, there's just so much uh, truth to that. And oftentimes, we just lose sight of the fact of, of who we are. And so again, it's just so important uh, for those reminders, uh, for us to be reminded uh, who, whose we are and who we are in Christ. These last few weeks, we've kind of been looking at that very first church um, in the very first century and how that very first church functioned. And thankfully, we, we kind of know a lot about that because of the book of Acts. Now, one of the interesting discoveries that we've kind of made along the way and we've kind of highlighted uh, these last few weeks is how similar the very first church there was then, thousands and thousands of years ago, um, to how the church is today. The very first church in the very first century was a really mixed bag of situations and circumstances. And the same is really true of, of all churches today as well. You had in the very first church, they faced good times and bad times. They had gains as well as losses, joys as well as sorrows. They had highs as well as lows, times of unity, times of chaos. They went through challenges, persecution, and disagreements. And all of that continues to happen and unfold in the church today, just as it did way back then in that very first church and every church since then. As a matter of fact, a lot of the storylines you see there in the book of Acts in that very first church in the very first century are really similar to a lot of the storylines you see in the church today. Same story, just different names, different people, but oftentimes very similar situations and circumstances. And I say that because a lot of times it's really easy to lose sight of that. And one of the uh, things that we can do when we have kind of that mistaken mindset is that when problems and challenges, persecution uh, come upon the local church today, we think there's something wrong with us. Oh, you know, God is punishing us. God has forsaken us. When again, that's not uh, accurate at all. And we kind of sometimes have to look back and, and see how that first church was there in the very first century and just remind ourselves the things that happened there and the way that God moves through those are things that are gonna happen here today in our church. And again, it's an opportunity, a reminder to us, just as God moved and used that situation and those circumstances there, God is gonna move and use those situations and circumstances here today. And again, much of what you see recorded there in the book of Acts, again, it's there for our benefit. It's to teach us, it's to encourage us, it's to give us guidance, to give us wisdom, and to remind us what that first church was really like. So that when we face similar situations and circumstances, challenges and difficulties, we have something 
to go back to and see how did they handle that situation? How did God use that situation? How was God able to redeem that? And, and for that, we should be very thankful for the wisdom that God's given us in that. And that very first church uh, along with, with that was the very first church. It, it was really very helpful in that they kind of established a sense of what they believe. They kind of helped us to kind of understand what are the important things uh, to believe and, and also what they chose not to believe. And a lot of the problems, the struggles, the disagreements, and the challenges uh, were regarding those beliefs. And they were willing to defend, even if it meant suffering, persecution, or even death. And, and one of the beliefs that has remained steadfast, it, we find it there in the very first church in the very first century there in the book of Acts. And one of the beliefs that was just paramount and, and was just a, a, a focal point of, of the church uh, throughout history uh, was again launched and galvanized around a single event in world history. And this event uh, was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it was an event, it kind of galvanized and it unified uh, believers of that first century. And what's interesting is within a few months of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as, as he rose from the dead and as they began to proclaim his resurrection, over 5,000 men and women and children had embraced this belief that Jesus Christ indeed was God's son. He was the Messiah and that God had sent him to redeem mankind from their sins and to restore them back into a right relationship with God the Father. And what's amazing is as the message of Jesus's resurrection, as this good news goes out into the world, not everybody received it as good news. And one of the things that we discover as the good news of the message goes out is that there's just all kinds of chaos erupts in the city of Jerusalem. And one of the ways the Jewish religious leaders decided to respond to this good news, this disruption, was to persecute and to try to squelch the message of this new movement and those who were proclaiming this news about his resurrection from the dead. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts at all, you'll know that one of the most well-known antagonists of that time who led probably the greatest revolt against this message was a man named Saul, who following a very dramatic conversion to Christ uh, in Acts chapter nine along the road to Damascus, he becomes Paul. He goes from Saul to Paul and he goes on to become an apostle of the early church and he wrote many of the books uh, in the New Testament. And again, Paul, this now devoted follower of Christ, decides to do something very crazy. And it really went against the grain of Jewish thought at that time. And Paul decided this good news, this message of Christ's death and his resurrection from the dead, it wasn't just good news to the Jewish people. It was good news to the whole world. And so Paul uh, kind of decides that his mission isn't to the Jewish people, rather it's to the Gentiles. 
And so Paul embarks on all of these journeys to take the message of Jesus' resurrection outside of Palestine, to take it outside of Judea, and he spreads it all along the Greek world, throughout Turkey and Greece and all along the Mediterranean rim. And for years and years and years, Paul travels through this very dangerous part of the world. Now, I want to underscore that. This wasn't, you know, he did this aboard a carnival cruise. Paul takes this message into a very dark, very violent, again, a very dangerous part of the world. And everywhere Paul goes, everyone that Paul encounters He gives them this message of what God has done for them. The free gift of eternal life. God did this by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for your sins. And then God gives us the testimony that he is the son of God by resurrecting him from the dead. And and so Paul, he's going all among the Gentile world. And and he is telling them that God has finally answered the question. God has finally sent the ultimate solution to those questions. What do we do with our sin? How do we have peace with God? How do we get to heaven? All kinds of questions like that. And God answered, God settled those questions as well as many others by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for the world. And so for years and years, Paul is traveling through the entire region of the world and he's teaching, proclaiming this message. And, he, and he's planting all of these little churches uh, everywhere he goes. And while the apostle Paul is busy doing this back in Jerusalem, which again is kind of the sort, it's kind of the hub of everything Christian at this point, there is a controversy that starts brewing. And we're gonna look at that today. And this controversy erupts about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it kind of occurs around the very end of Paul's first missionary journey where he's kind of spreading the gospel to all of these non-Jewish, these Gentile people. And the controversy that kind of erupts Uh, in the church there in Jerusalem was mainly uh, around this question. Who should be a part of the church? Who gets in and who doesn't? How good do you have to really be? How many and exactly what rules do you have to obey? How holy is holy enough? How much of your lifestyle do you have to clean up before you can be accepted in the church? What does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus in terms of your lifestyle? Now, this controversy is very, very understandable, and it's, it's predictable, it's expected if you understand the first century. Back in Jerusalem, there in the first century, Back in this, you know, the very first church in the very first century, you had this group of very strict Jewish leaders. And these leaders 
were people who not only believed in the 10 commandments, but they also believed in over 600 other laws as well. And these leaders, they had been taught from an infant up, they had been taught and brought up to keep, to obey every one of these 613 laws. And, and they kind of just viewed Jesus, they viewed the message of Christianity kind of as, as an add-on or an extension of Judaism. So these Jews just kind of assumed, and, and rightly so, that in order to become a follower of Jesus, you first had to become a follower of Moses. Now to these Jewish leaders, again, th this made perfect sense. You had to become Jewish first before you could become a Christian. And again, this made perfect sense to them because they, they would point back to the words of Jesus there in Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So to them, this was a natural expectation. It, it made perfect sense to them that in order to become a Christian, you would first become Jewish, then you would become Christian. So the problem and the controversy erupted because again, Paul, for years and years and years, Paul's been traveling all over the, the, uh, the uh, outside of Jerusalem and he's telling these non-Jewish people, Jesus died for your sins. You can be forgiven of your sins because of Jesus's death on the cross. And we're confident of this and we can guarantee you this because God raised him from the dead. And so Paul would kind of go into these, you know, Gentile places, these non-Jewish communities, and he would simply say to them, if you just believe in Jesus, believe that he died for your sins, believe that God resurrected him from the dead, you can be saved. Then these Jewish leaders would then go into these very same places. They would kind of follow along Paul. When Paul left, they would come in and they would tell these new Gentile believers, here's what they would tell them. Yeah, what Paul told you, that's true. But that's not all you have to do to be saved. There's more. It's just not quite that simple. First, you have to memorize some things. And then you've got to do some things. You've got to jump through a few hoops. You've got to clean up certain areas of your life. You've got to get your act together in certain places. Uh, and when you've done all of that to our satisfaction, then we'll embrace you. And that conflict, that controversy, it's really an, an age, uh, it's really an, uh, an age old one. And it's basically the battle between law and grace. We're all familiar with that conflict, that controversy. We have found ourselves embroiled in that as well. One of the main issues between law and grace is most churches, I would say every church struggles with this to varying degrees. And that was certainly the case of this very first church in the very first century. And most of us can understand a little bit of the angst and the conflict because again, we acknowledge Christianity, it has a moral standard. Aspects of Christianity involve ethical issues. 
The Bible's very clear on the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, light and darkness, righteousness and unrighteousness. We find throughout the New Testament commands, there's expectations laid out of how to and how not to act. Parts of Christianity certainly give us moral imperatives. And yet, at the same time, we find this incredible message of grace and forgiveness. And at times we feel that tension, we feel that conflict between the two, the do's and the don'ts of Christianity, the message of grace and the message of forgiveness. And here's what tends to happen in the midst of this conflict and tension between law and grace. Most churches begin to erect barriers and they begin to send a very clear message that says, if you wanna be a part of our church, before you get too comfortable here, here's some things you need to start doing and here's some things you need to stop doing. So I say right up front, this is a very natural conflict and every church struggles with this tension between the two. We've got the 10 commandments. You know, again, that's the moral imperative that's part of Christianity. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not be harsh to your children. Do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother, and on and on and on I could go. And again, what creates the conflict and the tension in most local churches. And again, this isn't just us, this is every church. From the beginning there, in that very first church. And what creates the conflict and tension in most local churches is when the gospel, the truth of the gospel, runs smack dab into the grace of the gospel. When the truth of the gospel runs head on into the grace of the gospel. Now here's the interesting thing with Jesus. When he went about doing ministry and interacting with sinners, which he often did, the disciple John made this observation about Jesus and the way Jesus kind of lived and dealt with people. And he makes this very astute observation in John chapter one, verse 14. And he said, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So John's saying when, when Jesus comes to us in human flesh, interacts with sinners, John recognizes and sees Jesus as one who was filled with both, um, with both grace and truth. That as he looked at Jesus and Jesus's ministry, Jesus was grace and truth completely fully embodied in one person. Now let's make just a distinction here. Jesus wasn't the perfect 50-50 blend. 50% grace, 50% truth. And that's what most churches teach. It's what most of us strive for. John recognizes that Jesus completely embodied the fullness, the completeness of both grace and 
truth. And there was no conflict, no nuance, and no tension between the two. And here's why I believe this is so crucial. When the local church gets this right, it's no longer a balancing act between truth and grace. It's not a clean yourself up first, but neither is it let's just throw away the standards so everybody feels good about themselves and nobody's condemned or convicted. When the local church gets this right, when we come together under the name of Jesus, there should be an embodiment both in us individually, collectively as a church, that again, it's the embodiment, the fullness of grace and truth. And that we're living that out in such a way that forgiveness isn't dumbed down, grace isn't cheapened, and the moral imperatives of Christianity aren't just tossed aside and ignored. That somehow, again, when we get this right in the local church, that somehow I believe it's possible that grace and truth can coexist in such a powerful, transformative way. The early church in Acts dealt with this. They felt that controversy. They struggled with that tension. And every church since then until us here this morning, we have struggled with it as well. And here's what we can learn from them. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open to chap, uh, Acts chapter 15. And as you do that, let me warn you kind of what we're gonna talk about this morning. I may need to have a PG-13 rating to it, but it's in the Bible, so we should be able to talk about it, right? So I just wanna let you know right up front, for some of you, this may be a little bit uncomfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable. It's worth it because I believe it'll kind of amaze you with what the early church got tripped up on right out of the box. Acts 15, beginning with verse one. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Remember what I said? Paul would go in and teach them. You know, all the, the, Jesus Christ is uh, sufficient uh, alone for salvation. And then these Jewish believers would come in right after Paul and begin to kind of add to uh, requirements of, of, of what they needed to do to really become a Christian. So uh, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you got, again, these Jews, they come down from Jerusalem, they go into Antioch there, and here's their message to these brand new believers, these new churches that Paul has established there, and here's their message. Unless you have this surgery, you cannot become a Christian. You have to be Jewish, and in order to be Jewish, you're gonna have to have a little surgery. Now again, these, these Jewish Leaders, they're very, very serious about this. And these were, you know, non-Jewish Gentile men they're talking to here who were not circumcised. And they're telling them, unless you have this surgery, you cannot be saved. These Jewish leaders really believed that before these Gentiles could be fully embraced by the church, before they could really become a part of the Christian gathering, they had to join the Moses Club before they could join the Jesus Club. Verse two, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently, as you can well imagine. 
Again, they're going throughout this region and they're telling the Gentiles all that was necessary was for them to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, believe in their hearts, God raised him from the dead, and Paul said, you shall be saved. And yet here comes some Jewish leaders telling them that's not enough. There's more that you have to do. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them this much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. And they began to report to them everything God had done through them. So before they even get to this issue of that's causing conflict and controversy, Paul kind of gives them an update of all of the miraculous and glorious things that God had been doing among these very uh, Gentile believers. Verse five, but some of the believers who belong to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentiles converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Now, again, for us that are, that are non-Jewish Christians, we have no idea what this really means. So let me kind of give you the 30-second version. Again, when we hear the term, the law, we're kind of conditioned to think about just, you know, the Ten Commandments, and, and those are good. I mean, again, most of us like them. You know, we don't obey them always, but we like them. You know, we want our kids to obey these commandments, right? But that's not what this is talking about. What they're talking about in this wasn't just the 10 commandments. They're saying in order for them to really be Christians, they've got to follow all 613 of these laws. So what they're basically saying to Paul is you get back on your boat and you go back to all of those places you've been. And you need to tell these people, it's not just believing in Jesus. It's not just believing God raised him from the dead. That's not sufficient enough. You've got to tell them they have got to begin to follow and obey all 613 of these laws or they're not Christian. Now again, to us non-Jewish Christians, I mean, we're like, that is so ridiculous. That is so archaic. I mean, we know that, but here's where we, we need to be careful before we judge them too harshly because if we're not careful, I'll guarantee you this kind of, creep, this kind of thinking creeps in for all of us. Again, oftentimes we make the mistake, we think, oh, we're, we're so open-minded, we're so grace-filled, we're so accommodating. And how many of you see something or you hear somebody say something who's a Christian and they do or say something that you kind of deem unchristian. And how many of us have caught ourselves looking at or, or seeing or hearing uh, something that someone says, they claim to be a believer, and we'll say to ourselves, there's no way that person can be a Christian. There's no way, given what that person does, what they say, there's no way that they can be saved. But again, if we're not careful, we're not aware of, we're not mindful, we all settle into some 
form some version of this type of Christianity. Suddenly somebody comes along and doesn't fit our version or our mode or our expectations of Christianity and we become a little pharisaical. We become a little judgmental. We become a little bit uncomfortable with having them in the church. Now, here's how this may sound in our culture today. You're a Christian and you vote Democrat? Oh, you, you can't possibly be saved and vote Democrat. Or I've heard Democrats who say you're a Christian and you support Republicans? Are you nuts? You can't possibly be saved. You can't possibly be a Christian and support Republicans. How can you call yourself a Christian and vote pro-choice? It just, the two don't go together. The other side says, well, how can you be a Christian and vote pro-life? According to my gospel, that doesn't go together. So you're not saved. I've heard statements like this from both sides. And people on both sides of these issues struggle to understand how someone on the other side of the issue can call themselves a Christian and think this way, vote this way, act this way. Well, it's a version of what was happening there in the very first church in the very first century. Different issue, but same dynamics. I mean, that first church in the first century, they hadn't even gotten the wrapping paper off of this and they're already struggling with this. It's brand new and all of a sudden they've got this controversy erupting. Verse seven, at the meeting after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows, brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles. Again, see, uh, Peter stood and he said, God has chosen me not to take the message to the Jewish people, but God has also chosen me to take the message of the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles, just like my brother Paul. So they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts. That is so key there. Oftentimes, I don't know your heart. I just see your behavior. I don't see your heart. I just see how you dress. I don't know your heart. I just see you're all tatted up and all these body piercings. I don't know your heart. I just know the music you listen to. It just doesn't seem like that's what a Christian would listen to, but I don't know your heart. I don't know your heart. I just know what you watch on the internet. I don't know your heart, mister. I just know your hair is a little too long. God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. 
So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? Peter just gives this brilliant challenge. And he says to them, look back on our own history as Jews and our own personal journey, our own personal life experiences. None of us have ever measured up to the demands of the law. None of us have ever perfectly obeyed everything always. Every one of us have struggled in certain areas to keep the demands of the law. Every one of us have struggled and failed to keep just the 10 commandments, let alone the other 600. He says, come on, fellow Jews, we don't even keep the law all that well ourselves. How can we expect them to? How in the world can we expect Gentiles who didn't grow up being taught the law of Moses to keep the law of Moses when those of us who have been taught from infants were raised to obey the law of Moses and we couldn't even do it. Verse 11, Peter continues, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message that they united around. That belief that Jesus died for us and all of that was an undeserved grace given to all. And Peter's making the argument here with two points. First, God knows people's hearts. Only God can see the heart of a person. And secondly, he cleansed their hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying is God purifies the heart before he purifies our lives. God begins the work on the inside before God ever, before you'll ever see anything happening on the outside. Whether we like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, it takes time for what God does in the human heart to translate, to manifest in the human life. God will purify our hearts before he fixes our addictions. God will purify our hearts before he changes our habits. God will purify our hearts even though we have insecurities that drive us into behaviors we're ashamed of. And here's the thing, if God does that for you and God does that for me, then he does that for the people around us. The truth is we're so much more patient and understanding and forgiving when it comes to ourselves and what God is trying to do in us than we are with those around us. Where Peter finishes, James continues, and I'm gonna just skip down to verse 19. And he says, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them, tell them to abstain from eating foods offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So basically, they kind of just decide, let's write a letter and we're gonna tell them two things, not 10, 
we're going to tell them two things. First, try not to offend the Jews. And secondly, abstain from sexual immorality. That's it. And if you'll agree to that, come on in, be saved, join the church and be a part of what God is doing. You want to know how the people responded? Verse 31, and there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging letter. I'll bet, especially among the men, right? So let me give you at least one takeaway from this lesson. There are obviously more than this one, but let me leave you with what I think may be the most important thing we can take away from this as a church and as Christians. The drift, and it is a slow, gradual, progressive drift toward laws, rules, regulations, policies, and away from grace is the ongoing natural tendency of every local church. It was then, it is now, and it always has been, and it always will be till Jesus comes back. The natural tendency of every local congregation is to drift away from grace toward having a lot of policies, a lot of rules, and to kind of begin to think in terms of categories. This was what was happening there in the early church regarding the law and policy regarding circumcision. And we, we can do the same thing. A category, Gentile, the policy is you gotta be like Moses and be circumcised, then you can be saved. The category, Gentile, here's the policy. You gotta follow all the laws, not just 10, but all 613. Category, women, you can't be an elder or you can't be a leader over men in the church. We just saw that. I don't know how many of you have been kind of following the Southern Baptist Convention, but they have actually started disaffiliating and, and removing churches from the Southern Baptist Convention that ordain or allow women to speak and preach over men. This is, this is not anything new. Category, Christian, policy, no tattoos. You can't smoke, you can't cuss, you can't drink, can't have sex outside of marriage, and if you do any of these things, you're probably not saved. Again, when the church begins to drift and to function along these guidelines and along the lines of rules, of regulations, of laws, of policies, expectations, and less and less along the lines of grace, forgiveness, mercy, love, then the thing is we tend not to have very many discussions. I don't need to know your name I don't need to know your story. Tell me your category and I'll give you the policy. And when you're no longer in that category and have fulfilled our policies, then we'll talk. That's again how churches naturally tend to just drift away from grace into law, policies, rules, and regulations. And here's the thing, I think when you have fewer policies, laws, and regulations, you just tend to have more conversations. And that's kind of what Jesus did. Jesus is walking one day, remember, and he sees, um, he sees Levi, 
who is Jewish and is a tax collector and he's sitting there at the toll booth collecting taxes unfairly, unjustly from people. And everybody in town hates him as they hated all tax collectors. Jesus sees Levi sitting there, the port of custom, and Jesus looks at him and says, Matthew, come, follow me. Peter's thinking, wait, 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 time out, Jesus. Category, Jewish tax collector. He must no longer be a tax collector. Then we can have that conversation with him. He needs to leave what he's doing before he can come and be a part of us. And Jesus says, Matthew, come, follow me. Come with me. We're gonna have a conversation. But wait, he hasn't stopped collecting taxes yet. He's not in the right category yet. See, that's laws, rules, categories, policies. And Jesus is able to look beyond all of that. He says, Matthew, come, follow me. Say, where are we going? He said, we're gonna go to his house. And that's even worse, I know. We're gonna go to his house and we're gonna invite a bunch of other people just like him. We're gonna have a meal and we're gonna talk. They're gonna ask me what I think and I'm gonna say, hey, let the one without any sin cast the first stone. Churches that are okay with the messiness of no policies and no categories are far more likely to understand and experience this amazing, wonderful merger of uncompromised truth and full on grace. Policies, categories, rules, regulations are easy. I don't have to meet with anybody. I don't have to talk to anybody about that. You just send them the form, here are the guidelines, here's the rules, here's the policy. Whereas conversations and grace and mercy and compassion, it's messy, but it's wonderful. It's powerful. And it's what Jesus did. That's what the local church is supposed to do as well. And that's what the church of Acts back there in chapter 15 modeled for us today. And again, when it comes to the choice between law and grace, we are called to err on the side of grace. When there's conflict and tension between the moral imperatives and what scripture teaches, and we absolutely love the scripture and we wanna strive with all of our heart to be faithful and obedient to what God's word teaches, and yet here comes a person who's just not quite there yet. They're not where we are yet. And there's conflict, there's tension that comes in that. And we have to decide, you know what? If we're going to make a mistake, if we're gonna go too far either way, let's err on the side of grace. Aren't you glad that God erred on the side of grace in our lives, in our situations? 
Aren't you glad he didn't say, okay, I'm gonna love and accept you, but here are 613 things you gotta do first. Call me when you get them all implemented. If we can be intentional about trying to be a church where this wonderful, beautiful, sometimes messy thing of grace and truth come together, not in a balanced way, but in a powerful and a dynamic and a transformative way, then I believe God can and will use this church in powerful ways. And God will use each of us as a part of that to do something unique and remarkable in our community, in our generation, as we continue to be something, uh, to be part of something uh, that is called the church, the body of Christ. Amen? Let's go ahead and stand together. Father, again, we, we just uh, take this message to heart this morning. And God, if we look long enough, we'll find ourselves somewhere in this conversation in the situation that happened there. Lord, oftentimes we, we can become like those Jewish leaders in the things that we say and the way that we uh, treat unbelievers and sometimes even believers. That unless they see what we see, say what we say, agree with what we agree with, Lord, that somehow their version of Christianity uh, is, is less than our own. And oftentimes, God, we're guilty of judging the heart when we have really no place, we have no ability to do that. As the scriptures confirm, only you know our hearts. And you know where each of us are at. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have a plan to bring each one of us more and more being conformed into the image of your son. And Father, I thank you that that is your job. And Lord, we're here to support and to encourage, to pray for one another in that process, Lord. Not to judge, not to condemn, but to prayerfully encourage along the way. And so God, we, we just wanna be a part of the work that you're doing in the lives of people both in this church and outside this church. And Father, for ways that we have erected barriers or we have made policies or guidelines or rules, Lord, that, that make people feel unwanted or unwelcomed until they reach a certain point in their walk, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us. And Lord, again, just make our hearts aware when, when we're drifting in that direction that God, you would again just gently remind us that what you've done for us, Lord, that there's no distinction, there's no favoritism, that what you've done for us and your patience and your, your kindness and your compassion for us along the way, through all of our failures and our mistakes, God, that you, you desire to be that in the lives of others as well. So Father, help us to be patient Help us to be compassionate. Help us again to be filled with grace and truth. To be just the full on embodiment of that, Lord. Just as Jesus was, Lord. So God, we just look to you, Lord. And we just lift up our church to you this morning. 
And God, we pray that you would just continue to work in us, to make us a church that really strives toward being welcoming and loving. Father, that again, we will speak the truth, but God, we will do that encased in love. That God, actually, we would not be more concerned about the truth, but we would be more concerned about love. And that Lord, out of that love, the truth will come forth in a very powerful and a transformative way. So God, forgive us when we've made it more about truth and less about love. Lord, again, just help us to grow more and more into the image of Christ, to be able to live and to model that in a way for others as well. The Father, they can look at our lives and they can see what you're doing in us. And Father, as we pray and encourage one another, Lord, that what you've done in us, Lord, you can do in others as well. So we just pray you'll create an environment, Father, where there is just a place of, of the full grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ in us and, and in this body. Father, help each of us just to, to do our part, to walk that walk and to do as Jesus did. Father, again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you again for the wisdom, the truth, the guidance that it brings us, Lord. Just give us wisdom, discernment, courage to be able to walk in that as well. And we thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing and all that you've yet to do in us and in this church. We just offer ourselves in this church to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Church, including gathering Amen. times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.